No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I'm going to taxi you back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our feet. Not like this, not like this. You almost had us, you almost had us. We'd gotten over the booing prior to the tournament. The rice and greedish fiascos all water under the bridge. We were well on board with this hashtag likeable England team led by the equally likeable Gareth Southgate with their moments of anti-racism and pro-LGBT support, but not like this. A questionable penalty against our beloved Danes, a penalty that was then missed and rebounded by Harry Kane despite a laser being pointed at Kasper Schmeichel's face after an equaliser from an own goal, a yucky way to win a semi-final in front of a packed home ground in a tournament where the stars are aligning perfectly now for England. Well, I think I speak for everyone now when I say, Saturnando a casa a Roma, Forza Italia, Forza Italia. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Back podcast, the second of this big week of Euros football. Joining me as always is Phil and Inda. How are you, lads? Buongiorno, lads. Very good. Espressiano. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What you didn't see there was my uh, my three fingers pinched together as I uh, in the air. <laughs> you know, I've got the moped rocking here in the background, you know. <laughs> the espresso cups everywhere. Well, there we have it, down to the final two of our, and one of which is our pre-tournament pick, Italy facing England. It wasn't until maybe 48 hours ago, we couldn't begrudge them a win to now firmly begrudging them a win. Italy conquered Spain in penalties after a fantastic 120 minutes of football, where it was Spain that had us off our seats in one of the best performances of the tournament. But it wasn't enough to beat Mancini and his mustachioed assistant with the clipboard. While on Wednesday night, the Denmark dream sadly came to an end, but not after a few moments of pure and utter ecstasy, when the man-child-looking Mikkel Damsgaard finally dirtied Jordan Pickford's sheet in the tournament with one of the best free kicks I've seen for a long time. Um, Lads... I'm sure you're all dying to get into everything England, but I think we'll have to kick off on um, on Spain and Italy. I mean, I probably I can't think of, or I can't remember a better tournament semi final for a long, long time than that one. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? It, it felt like a real treat. Um, like having like an incredible intensity and kind of a, a real fever pitch to it, but never losing out on the technical side because of it, which is nice. And um, because oftentimes you kind of get one or the other, you might get a bit of a cagey match that's quite good technically, or you might get fire and brimstone that's full of mistakes. But actually, um, on on Tuesday night, um, check my dates. Yeah, yeah, Tuesday night. The um, the the technical quality on show, especially uh, especially from Spain. In fairness, uh, was was incredible. But um, uh, it, was, it was just a brilliant match. I mean, the the, the battle between the two midfielders, you kind of had. Pedri and, and Busquets, and there was no pass that those two lads couldn't play. And then you kind of had these whirling dervishes of Barella and Verratti trying to swarm in around them. And 
it was like it was absolutely fantastic and as you said um spain kind of brought something to the party that they hadn't shown yet i mean notwithstanding that they scored 10 goals across their their last group game and the and the quarter final or the sorry the last 16 game and um, they probably hadn't shown that about them yet and um, thought danny almo was great and um, like you, you you could pick out anyone from that spanish team i thought that had a brilliant game and they're probably really unlucky just to run in to a side who riding a wave of momentum and full of belief and who seemed to really be enjoying themselves encapsulated by what Chiellini was doing pre-penalty shootout with, with, with Jordi Alba. Um, they ran into a side who was probably just high enough on confidence to kind of roll with the punches a little bit. And um, I think somebody, I saw somebody say it on Twitter and encapsulated it quite well. Spain probably deserved it on the night, but over the course of the tournament, Italy probably deserved it. Yeah, I'd agree. And what I loved about the match, it was sort of the two modern day versions of football colliding, really. You know, this possession-based version of Spain that we've kind of come accustomed to over the past, you know, eight to 12 years versus the, you know, slightly more modern counter-attacking style of a dynamic front three. So to see that come together in both goals was was really exciting. Um, and, you know, Spain, for probably the first time in the tournament, I, I would say that Luis Enrique was genuinely unlucky in, in terms of, um, you know, not getting through the match. I mean, if you had the Sociedad version of Mikel Oyazabal, uh, as opposed to whoever version he was that night, where, you know, particularly the missed header, you know, he's very mm-hmm. good in the air, actually. Um, and that poor touch he had in the first half when he was through on goal, I mean, the, the Sociedad version of him really finishes off those chances in his sleep. Um you know, so I felt for the first time Enrique was very unlucky. I think he did everything right on the evening. Um, and, you know, it was the type of Spain you, you hope for going into an international tournament where they, you know, build up to to a level that you would expect. But after the Sweden game at particular, I thought we're not going to see that this year. Um, and then it all just clicked together for them, especially that midfield. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning to see them. Uh, and and Almo really stepping up a level that we've not seen from him for you know you know we saw it with the under twenty ones a few years ago in in the European Championships when they won that but mm-hmm. to see it in a World Cup was you know very exciting for them so um, you know Pedri is just an exceptional talent as well so it, it was really stunning to watch but you know from a selfish perspective I feel that Italy are still a better you know or a more tougher matchup for England. Um, than Spain might have been. So I was happy to see them get through in the end, but I thought they really looked out on their feet for yeah. most of the second half and, and throughout extra time. Um, so I was actually surprised they managed to hang on to penalties because it, it just felt like it was Spain all over. Yeah, and I think Luis Enrique probably deserves a huge amount of uh, credit for the performance because coming into it, he made two huge calls. First of which was, um, was dropping Pau Torres and I think Garcia brought a little bit more balance to the defensive pairing and I know we spoke about it the other day um, that kind of two left-footed centre-halves pairing and, and, and how they shape together but I thought Laporte probably had his best performance um, of the tournament um, I thought he was excellent and um, Sierra Immobile didn't get a sniff really until uh, until he went off after the hour mark um, but now obviously then um, dropping Morata who I mean there's, there's, there's books you could write on Morata at this point I mean he's just I think he's a sports psychologist dream at this point. Um, but Danny Almo coming in for him um, through the centre, and he was absolutely excellent. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think um, we spoke before the tournament about uh, maybe Enrique and Mancini being the two managers of real kind of elite club level 
uh, in this tournament and it, it was it was great to see them clash i mean probably would have been nice for it ultimately to be the final but it, it was great to see them clash and i suppose you, you think about the, the changes especially that enrique made and it is kind of more kind of reminiscent of a club manager kind of rolling the dice at this stage it's very much kind of what we have we hold in international tournaments by the time you get around to the semi-final but Enrique kind of really going back on one of his entrenched pieces, which, as to quote him from earlier in the tournament, it was Murata plus 10 others. Um, Murata joined the 10 others on the bench, uh, and and I think it worked to great effect. I mean, like you said, you could definitely write a few books on the poor man at this stage. I mean, was there anything anything more certain than him missing that penalty? Make Him scoring the goal made it more likely that he was going to miss the penalty, to be honest, not less. Um, but I, I think certainly within the... The 90 or 120 minutes, I think Enrique got the calls spot on. I think they kind of surprised Italy a little bit. Italy were expecting one thing, and they got something completely different. I thought Almo operated in some really good spaces that confused Italy a little bit and kind of clogged up the areas that Italy had been used to to having a little bit more space in, and certainly would have been expecting to have more space in. So I think it was a real flexing of the muscles from Enrique. I think it's probably encouraging when you look at uh, the, that kind of shorter window than normal from the Euros into the World Cup in that you're still going to have somebody like Busquets and Alba, not with not too much extra miles in the legs, but then you're going to have somebody like Pedri, who's going to come on an awful lot for another season and a half of football. So I, I think it, it was probably quite encouraging for Spain and quite encouraging that Enrique rolled the dice in the way that he did. And there maybe there's signs that they're starting to develop a couple of ways of playing. But um, yeah, I, I, I think ultimately... Um, they'll look back on this as not too bad an exercise, considering where they were after the first two group games. Yeah, I, I can't remember a striker in living memory who's been transferred for the amount of money Morata has, which is around two hundred million to this stage. Who has that public empathy of desperation to succeed? I don't know. Maybe it's, is he a humanitarian that I've missed out on or something? I ju- I just don't get it <laughs> at this stage. But um, you know, he's you know even there was a there was a moment after he scored the goal where he tried to dribble on the left hand side and it hit off his wrong foot and yeah. you know rolled out of play and you just thought. This is just Murata in a nutshell, you know. He's just overall, he's probably at number nine. Just can't trust uh, in a big tournament that Spain would be expecting. You know, you think back to you know Torres in two thousand and eight, V in two thousand and ten. You know, they've nobody near that level at the moment. Uh, and you know, I'd agree wholeheartedly with Phil. I mean, you'd put your house on him not scoring that penalty when he stepped up. I mean, he just. I, I can't remember a, a striker who lacks as much confidence as he does um, consistently. Um, but that aside, uh, you know, everything is extremely positive for Spain. You know, maybe slightly concerning, particularly the Busquets role. Uh, Alba not so much because they have Gaia coming through who's sensational for Valencia. And we saw him earlier in the tournament. I mean, he's going to be, you know, Spain's left back for the next six or seven years easily. And, and I think they will fix the centre-back position. I'm not sure Garcia is the answer. Um, but, you know, with Laporte finally committing to Spain, um, you'd imagine they'd, they'd find him a, a competent partner over the next 18 months. So overall, they probably have about seven or eight of their positions comfortably filled for the World Cup, which is a nice position for them to be in. Um, and obviously, Enrique is, is very motivated to succeed with Spain, obviously after the, the personal troubles he's had with it, you know his child passing away and you know mm. uh, recovering from his stint at Barca, which left him really exhausted. Um, so... I think Spain are in in very good shape. It's it's just a case of whether you know they can, you know, take it on from here. But certainly, it was one of the most impressive Spain performances I've seen in the last couple of years. Um, and and I'm looking forward to see how they how they fix those you know 
issues in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah, and I think something else going to, really going to sense them is um, is just how they keep fighting after going down one nil. Um, I was thinking after Chiesa's goal that this could ever very easily um, drop the Spanish heads, and I mean, be two or three nil before we know it. Um, considering how well they've done up to that point, um, we've waxed lyrical about Pedri so far. I mean, he's been unbelievable, um, and it's been a real coming of age tournament for him. But on the Italian side, I think you're probably look taken away and looking at Federico Chiesa as being their kind of coming of age player and I know he's 23 now and he's been around the last couple of years I mean but another absolutely fantastic goal um, kind of becoming a trademark of his now onto his right foot um, you can kind of see it coming but he still manages to find a, find the far corner and bury it but uh, he's having a brilliant tournament isn't he? Yeah, like such has been his um, his impact on the team that it's hard to believe that he he only came into things really in, in extra time against Austria. I know he he played against Wales and all that, but in terms of like the, the starting team, Mancini's first choice eleven, he wasn't there for the first couple of games of the the tournament. He wasn't there in the last sixteen. He's been there ever since. Um, <clears throat> I fancy him to have a big tournament. I have a small few quid in him to win young player of the tournament actually, um, just because of of how he'd gone in an imperfect season at Juve, obviously. But, um, I mean, like he's, he's had an incredible impact in, in a team that seemed really settled and in a really good place. For him to come in and actually raise it again, I think says a lot about him. Um, so, like, Brady, it seemed like he frustrated his teammates a little bit in the first couple of games, you know, taking on shots when they might have rather the pass and all that sort of stuff. But, like, I don't think any of us had a problem with how Italy were playing in the group stages. Everyone was pretty sweet on them. And he's come in and he's made a real difference. Um like to, like his his goal obviously in the semi final was incredible. His goal against against Austria for different reasons was magnificent as well. And um, he's absolutely ripping it up. Um, and you'd imagine he's gonna if Italy are to prevail uh, in the final, you'd imagine he's gonna have a, a, a decent bit to say about it. Yeah, I've been really impressed with just his growth in the last twelve months. I mean, at Fiorentina, you know, he was playing like somebody who was hyped up for a very long time and, you know, was quite moody player to watch, you know, would take on shots from all sorts of angles, mainly because Fiorentina haven't had, you know, a, a striker to rely on in the past two or three years who so was trying to take on that responsibility while playing on the wing. And I just felt he wasn't progressing to the level that people in Serie A were expecting. And when Juve did fork out on him, I, I was a bit surprised on that. Um, but his development at Juve, I mean, he's, he was their player of their season really last season, if we're being honest. Um, not that there was too many others who, who really uh, played well for Juventus last season. But, you know, he's really developed to the extent, you know, Bernadeschi was the great hope in Italian football uh, three or four years ago. Um, and a similar kind of path, if you like, from Fiorentina to Juventus and Everybody thought that he would make that step up, but he hasn't. But Chiesa really has, uh, and his decision-making has really improved. The quality of his finishing has improved, and it, it's a really exciting situation for both Juventus and it, the Italian national team to be in for the next sort of six or seven years where they can really rely on him um, to be their kind of main left winger going forward. And, you know, if he could, continues to improve at this level, um, he's going to be an exceptional player for Italy. Onto the penalty shootout, lads, and I mean the the uh, the coin toss. Um, I mean, you're if you're trying to think of you know huge psychological moments in sport, and you know there's 
the coin toss is where your kind of things are the can before the storm. Like there's so much tension, there's a lot of pressure on the situation, and then you've little Alba and big Chiellini, and my, I mean Chiellini has just has the biggest smile in the world, and like it just oozes calmness and you know positivity it's not you know it's a semi-final penalty shootout and he's just laughing and joking you know the little punch to the uh, to the jaw and the chest um there's a brilliant picture i don't know if you've seen it with um donnarumma just standing a few feet away and he just has a little rice smile and it's like I can't, I can't believe you're falling for this as chiellini just kind of laughing and joking um with the referees after the coin toss i mean whether it had a bearing or not on the outcome, I don't know, but it certainly felt like a huge kind of uh, a psychological boost for the Italians to, to go in after that. Oh, it, it completely showed the mindset that, that they were in, or at least the mindset that Chiellini was trying to put them all in. Um, I've been noticing it during, during the tournament, actually, as they're singing the National Anthem, and obviously that's become kind of its own event within the event. But that kind of he's nearly smiling and laughing as he comes to the crescendo of that, and he looks down the line and he's kind of whipping everyone up into this kind of mm. happy fever. Um, and like it, it kind of struck me as kind of uh, the a different side of the same coin in his behavior before the before the penalty shootout definitely i think he saw how much it was pissing alba off because alba was not enjoying it and he doubled down after that like he really went for it <laughs> um but I, I think as much as what it does to spain it was a real kind of transmission to his side to to say listen like i mean we're enjoying this we're having the time of our life we're like we're here in a semi-final we, nobody expected us to be here we expected to be here we're having we're having great fun let's enjoy it um, it, it really felt like he was putting across a message to them to just go f- to go forward and forget about being nervous and just just enjoy it. It was like <laughs> it was just, it was ridiculous to see like it, it, to see Alba getting more and more annoyed and Kalini build it up more and more because of it. Um, like it, it felt a little bit surreal to be to be viewing it, um, but it, like it certainly seemed to work. And they're, they're outside of <laughs> Locatelli's first penalty, there didn't seem to be too many nerves from the Italian players. Um, but definitely, I think if if it didn't do too much to Spain, which which it might have done, I think it was definitely beneficial to Italy to see their kind of their their leader act like this and kind of brush off the the stakes of of the of the event. Yeah, extremely enjoyable. Really, <laughs> almost reminds me of his uh, interview after they beat Tottenham. You know, he's just that yeah. kind of <laughs> he's just that kind of guy who just kind of seems to enjoy rubbing it in the opposition without being this kind of almost overly cocky, annoying type of person. I mean. Everybody loves Chiellini. It's just the way he is. Um, but yeah, psychologically, Alba just looked almost shell-shocked at times when he was just kind of dragging his arm. And then, then he tried to hug him. I thought he was going to kiss him at one point, really, to be honest. Um, so <laughs> it was it was really fun to see. And it was a huge kind of psychological moment Um right ahead of the penalties. I mean, somebody did make the argument, would he have done that if it was Sergio Ramos? I don't think he would have done this to that extent, but because it's Chiellini, I mean, he's 36, maybe playing his last international tournament. Who knows? He might have done it to Sergio Ramos. I don't think he he overly thinks things through, to be honest. He's very matter-of-fact, a uh, bit like his defending, but um, it was uh, very enjoyable to watch, and it was a moment where you thought to yourself, yeah, I, mean, I think Spain are in a bit of trouble here. Um <laughs> And it it proved to be correct. Yeah, I, um, I, it wouldn't have had the same effects on Ramos. I don't think. Just just what yeah. added to it yeah. was the height difference between the two. It's just like, <laughs> oh, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like Chiellini was 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 the, the sixth year in school and Alba's a little first year yeah. or something. And he's just kind of pushing him around, you know. Yeah, as, um, as a vertical 
as a virtually challenged man, I, I will you know, happily <laughs> admit that I'm easily intimidated by taller people. So, yeah, uh, I'm sure that added to it for sure. Yeah. Um, although that was only my second favourite uh, penalty shootout moment this week. And I'm sure you've seen Emmy Martinez's uh, oh. antics for, for Yeremina. I mean, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't get away with that in the Euros or in the Premier League or anywhere, really, um, speaking to the taker like that. But, I mean, talk about mind games there to put him off. Yeah, and, like, there was this surreal moment, really, where you have Martinez just berating him as he walks up, berating him as he, he's about to take the shot. He saves it. And then you have Messi shouting at him from behind saying, dance now, dance now, which is just like bizarre, you know? So Mina, I, I don't know, was he like a hated character in South America? I'd never come across this before. But I mean, what a bizarre kind of 30 seconds he just lived there, you know? Uh, the keeper mocking him, misses Messi, the greatest player of all time, mocking him. I mean, you know, it's he'll, he'll be, uh, you know, he'll be returning to Merseyside in the summer with his tails be- tail between his legs for sure. But uh yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible moment, really. But um, it just goes to show the progression of Martinez, really, from being Arsenal's second choice goalkeeper behind a pretty mediocre guy in Leno to you know an incredible season at Villa and now being Argentina's Copa America keeper and then almost playing this you know evil villain slash hero role to <laughs> to stop um, Colombia going through. So. You know, it was just incredible, really, waking up and seeing mm. the pictures, um, you know, and I had to watch it back a few times. And, and even just as about to Mina, Mina is about to kick the ball, he's still shouting something about, you know, your brother or something like that. It's just bizarre, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was incredible, really. So, yeah, it's been quite the week for penalty shootouts. And don't forget the, the hip thrust after he saved it. <laughs> um <laughs> Before we sign off on the Spain-Italy game, I just quick word for, uh, for Phil. Um, like obviously, Morata had a had a terrible miss, but Thiago had a had a wonderful, uh, successful kick after another really under par performance by his standards. I mean, he came on in extra time. You'd imagine he'd have more than fresh legs, considering how sparse he used he's been over the course of the summer. But he just doesn't look too with it. Are you worried maybe going into next season with Liverpool that he's I don't know, has he just been lost his touch ever since he uh, joined Merseyside? I could not be happier that Luis Enrique is leaving him on the bench to come on and play shite for five minutes at a time. It's absolutely <laughs> fine by me if he comes on, tries to force it when lads are tired and he's not on it. Absolutely grand by me. He can kick his heels. Exact same with Firmino, Fabino, Allison. All the lads not getting big. Henderson, I'm annoyed about how much Henderson's playing at the minute for England, to be honest. I, I, I'd like that reined in a little bit. I could not care less if they don't play a minute. I'm on record. All I want is Cuevin Keller to play international football at the Liverpool players. Everyone else can retire. It's absolutely fine. Um, like in, in kind of half seriousness, I think it is part that like he's probably seeing how well someone like Pedri is playing. He's getting very small snatches of chances. He's probably coming on trying to force things. And not getting to the pace of games. He's coming on definitely the last night. I thought he came on when lads were very tired. And so he was overhitting passes and they were under running for passes. So it was, even, <laughs> it was, it was a, like a bigger gap. And um, I think even if they had been a full pelt, they wouldn't have made them, but it, it looked really, really off. Cause he was kind of really, he, he was like that time. Gerard was rested to play United and he came on and smashed Matt and got sent off in in like whatever it was, 60 seconds, or whatever. And, um, Thiago's doing like the passing version of that, I think, in this Euro. 
Um, I think it'll be grand when he comes around. I can't believe we're talking about Liverpool already. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I think he'll be fine next season. Um, and I'm absolutely grand worried. that 30-year-old Thiago is not having to run around in like 35 degrees Seville heat and uh, chase around after Nico Barella and Verratti and Liz and Everett. No, I'm grand. I'm cool. No, no, no. I'm not having a fill. Not having it one bit, to be honest. You know, from from the Sweden cameo onwards, which was just pure toilet. You know, if that's the form you want a Liverpool midfielder going into ahead of the new season, then, you know, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> I, I just think, you know, for somebody of his talent to just be randomly misplacing passes to the extent that he is, regardless of whether teammates are tired or not, I, I just find it bizarre. I'm a massive Thiago fan. I think he's an exceptional midfielder. And I was, you know, when he did sign, we were on the pod and I was just disgusted with the whole uh, with the whole show. But he, he does, I, I suppose what is relevant there is, you, you made a good point, he does seem to be just trying too hard, which is for a player of his natural ability, is almost kind of, it just doesn't suit him. And that's probably con- uh, contributing to these overhead passes or, you know, whatever he's trying to do. But he, he just seems to really be lacking confidence at the moment. Um and yeah, I I would be slightly concerned um, because he's coming off the back of a pretty dodgy season. Obviously, he had a bad dose of COVID as well, which didn't help. Um, now he's had not a great international tournament. And, you know, we did see towards the end of last season when Liverpool did start to play better, it was more with Fabinho in midfield, which obviously Wijnaldum and and obviously he's gone now. But, you know, Thiago isn't that direct replacement for the job that Wijnaldum was doing. So... Uh, it will be interesting to see uh, how he starts the new season. And obviously we were talking in the group earlier today about, you know, Harvey Elliott potentially being given the number seven and, and what role he will play next season. But um, Liverpool have a bit of thinking to do there in their midfield in terms of how they're going to balance Thiago because they couldn't manage it at all last season. But uh, I still expect them to figure it out, obviously. But um, yeah, uh, you know, it was a, it was a very disappointing tournament for him and, you know, um, I think that was a big shame because I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah, and a quick word then, obviously on on Jorginho's penalty. Um, I mean, what a what a penalty taker to come up and and take the fifth to to win the game. Um, I'm not a huge fan of his style, particularly like seeing in, in a run of the mill league game. I think it is beatable, but in that was kind of tense situation where he can just kind of drop that skip and uh, and just side side it to. The other side of the goalkeeper, um, who's already committed. I mean, just takes so much um, boil out of the pressure, um, and a hell of a penalty to to send Italy through onto Denmark, England, lads. And I mean, I think we were all pretty much maybe heart said Denmark, head said England. And I think you know after the twenty first twenty twenty five minutes, Denmark were really really impressive. I think. They were probably even keeled with England up to that point. Um, England hadn't created many chances, in, or Denmark um, had kept the same team. And there was a kind of an equally feeling that um, if we did continue deep into the second half like this, that tired legs might start to appear and England might just kind of pick them apart like they did against Germany. Um, but, I, I mean, when they got the free kick, what was it, 30, 35 yards out? I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't a complete convert. I mean, it, it, it it's a difficult distance. It was if it, it's not like a hundred percent start, but for some reason I was like, this fella's going to stand up and smash this into the back of the net. I just had a good feeling on him. Um, I mean, 
first of all, do you think Pickford maybe could have done a little bit better? Um, as I was a little bit critical of him. I think, you know, some goalkeepers um, uh, were kind of saying, you know, that he actually did quite well to get as close as he did, considering the whip on the ball. Whereas, you know, I'm just thinking, like, if, if that's Alisson or, or something like that, and it's that close to the centre of the goals, you're probably hoping he's going to save it. Um, but a hell of a free kick. And um, quick mention also to, to Damsgaard, who, who looks like the oldest uh, 21-year-old ever, I think, with that with that haircut. Um, <laughs> um, whatever angle you look at him, I don't know, is he 60 or 21? But um, there you go. Hell of, a, hell of a free kick. And not a bad um, way for, for Pickford to concede his first goal. Yeah, it reminded me actually of the way David Louise strikes free kicks. Like it was the kind of straight run up to it and kind of almost like a side foot on it. Um, like you, well, my first reaction was to think it was incredible. Then when you see a replay or two, you think, Jesus. And as is my thought process, most times Jordan Pickford can see the goal. I tend to think he could probably do a little better. But then like there's a lot of stuff going around about the impact of this second wall that Denmark had, had put together. And um it seems to have been something that a lot of teams have been doing in this tournament. They've been creating a second wall beside the wall and then kind of moving them across just at the wrong time to unsight the keeper a little bit. Um, so I don't think that helped Pickford. I thought I think it was a good strike. I think the second wall didn't help. And then I think Pickford in general could most of the time do better than he does. So I think there's probably three elements to it. But um, it was certainly one to get to get us up off our off our chairs. Like it was, it was a great strike, and um, it's 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 unusual. Like Damsgaard's had such a big impact on Denmark's tournament, and he wasn't in the starting team at the start of the tournament. He only came in mm. after the Christian Eriksen incident. Um, and for somebody who's been such a spark for them in, in loads of different ways, that nearly seems unusual. Um, but like he, he, he's had a great tournament. He's really announced himself um, on, on this kind of international stage. Like he went to Sampdoria last year, I think it was only nine million or something. I don't think he'll be long for there. I mean, you'd imagine he'll probably do a year there unless they can sell high on them but uh, I'd say there'd be a fair few people looking at him now because um, he, he has a lot about him like he has that spark but then like he showed last night and against was it Russia he got that really good goal as well and um, like he has a serious bit of whip and dip on his shots as well and um, he's a great player to watch in there <laughs> I agree with you Kev he kind of reminds me of one of those kind of corner forwards to trot towards you in Gaelic football and you think grand this lad won't be up to much and then he absolutely fucking cleans you out he's just <laughs> this fellow who doesn't look like he should have any sort of ability about him but he turns out to be absolutely brilliant that's what Damsgaard reminds me of he doesn't look like he, he looks like a fellow he'd walk past in done stores or super value and then all of a sudden he's <laughs> like whipping a shot in from 35 yards in the European championship semi-final yeah, he looks like he should be a cobbler or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, you know, if if you saw him down the street, you'd just pass him by and think, Jesus. Um, but, uh, like, uh, on the goal, I, it's weird. Sometimes a free kick just happens and you think, geez, something's going to happen here. Um, and Pickford was a bit of a wreck trying to line up his wall, even as the free kick was about to be taken. He didn't look settled at all. And I don't think this Denmark wall had, too much to do with it. I just think the England wall was positioned really poorly. And then you combine that with Pickford, you know, having the shortest arms of any keeper in the <laughs> in the tournament, of, in my opinion. Um, you know, it was very central when you actually see the replay. So uh, I felt it was all on him, really. Um, but when you see the replay again, there is insane dip on the ball. I mean, it actually goes mm. straight over Maguire's head, even after he jumps, which is very rare for a free kick from that distance to actually go over the players and dip um at the speed he hit it so 
that was probably what did for Pickford, but I was pretty disappointed with him in the end that he, you know, he got fingertips on it, but I felt it was extremely savable if he had positioned himself, positioned himself and his wall correctly. So it just seemed a bit chaotic trying to set up um, the wall and himself uh, right before the free kick. And I think that's what did for him in the end. Yeah, in fairness, there are reports today that uh, it shouldn't have stood in the first place um, because Phil mentioned that uh, double the wall situation that the Danish players had set up. Apparently, they were standing too close to the English wall. Um, uh, breaking that's the, the definitely the thing we should be. That's definitely the referee mistake we should be focusing on. Yeah, today, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's talk technicalities. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Two balls on the pitch. Is that is that what we're into now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. Um, just on Pickford, though. I mean, before and after that, he did look like he was having a meltdown. Um. I mean, throwing the ball straight to the through to the Danish players. Uh, I don't think I've seen that since uh, since a certain Carius in the Champions League final. I'm, and I was thinking, <laughs> you know, are we are we going to get a high profile mistake from Jordan Pickford just as he was kind of signing off on on a fantastic tournament? I think he had the the Golden Glove in the bag. Um, I mean, was this going to be the complete meltdown that maybe everyone had it in the back of their minds? But he, up until now, he just kind of held it all together. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the Danish uh, couldn't make him pay after that. Um, I mean, in fairness to England, like they kept, they, they just piled the pressure on after the goal. Um, they could very easily have wilted. Um, but I suppose, you know, that was one of the bonuses of having the, the home crowd um, cheering them along. Um, he, they had a fantastic opportunity to equalise, and Schmeichel saved from uh, Sterling, I think it was. Um, and then obviously, they had a kind of a complete. Um, duplicate, duplicate chance uh, with Saka down the right hand side and then uh, bundled in by Kyer but um, I mean credit to England in fairness to to get back so quickly because you maybe if if it did creep towards half time and into the second half there could have been a little bit of a panic stations and uh, the Danish proved towards the end of the game that you know that they were able to hold out uh, they could easily have held out for, for a 1-0 Yeah I, I think it was probably the key moment of the match to be honest with you that they did manage to score before half time because like you say um, they didn't let their heads go down um, after conceding like, not that it was an unexpected goal because I think Denmark actually had, had had the better of the play for the 15 minutes leading up to it but they weren't expecting to go behind in that exact situation from 35 yards out or whatever it was uh, and they didn't let it spook them too much I think they had maybe a ropey two or three minutes literally after the goal but after that they were straight back on it uh, like you said, had that really good chance right before scoring. I think if Denmark had gotten to half time, there's a chance that things get into England's head. The, the fans start getting a bit nervous. Things start feeling a bit like, oh no, not this again. And um, but Denmark didn't even get the chance to kind of savor that 15 minutes in, in the bells of Wembley, like with with, with Hulman telling them how well the the game plan had gone. Because if they went to, went in at one 0 up, they'd pressed England off the pitch. They'd made Pickford make mistakes. The centre half didn't look comfortable. The centre midfielders didn't look comfortable. And if Denmark were 1-0 up, it looks really, really rosy in the garden. Uh, but all of a sudden, one all um, off to give up a chance, like they, two chances really similar right in a row would have disappointed them. And all of a sudden, then it looks like a, an uphill task again. Uh, so I, I, I think you're right. I think it was nearly the win into the game because everyone knew that Denmark were going to tire. Everyone knew that when they did, they weren't going to be bringing on the same sort of quality that England can call upon. So the longer Denmark had a lead to hold on to, the better for them. And it just didn't last long enough. 
and it would have given England a real lift then going in and, and would have really deflated Denmark. So I, I completely agree. I think it was probably the, the swing in the match was, was that goal. Yeah, it was kind of the first time where that England pivot really looked, you know, under pressure with those four or five Danish players running at them. I mean, Braithwaite's control throughout the match was actually extremely impressive. Um, Dahlberg looked very sharp and obviously Damsgaard as well. Um, so that kind of period of, you know, 15 to 35 minutes, you know, Denmark were pretty much all over them, to be honest. Um, uh, and it's the first time we've seen England wills and they did concede in, in that period, I suppose. What was impressive is that they did manage to, to stem the flow and, and, and counter back um, with that Sterling chance first and then to keep it going. I mean, you, you know, we, we've we've seen a lot of Kane's playmaking ability in the past two to three years, but dropping deep and that pass through to Saka was just immaculate, really, um, for the equaliser. And that's what this England team has now compared to maybe, you know, a few years ago where they probably would have wilted and not found found an equaliser before halftime. Um, there's just a bit more character and confidence in, in this England team and, and getting the equaliser before, before halftime might agree with Phil that was the game really um, I couldn't really see Denmark being able to to launch a counter-attack uh, similar to what they did in that first half in terms of you know putting on that type of pressure attacking that England pivot and back four with that type of pace um, and they really just tried to hang on as much as they could to the point where they were pretty much playing for penalties for the last hour or so. Um, and perhaps slightly unfortunate with the decision, which we might get to. But mm. that aside, I think England were pretty worthy winners in the end. And it, it's probably made for a more interesting final anyway. Um, but, you know, I think Denmark were very, very impressive and, you know, showed a lot of people what they're about as well, which is probably the best we could have hoped for, really. Um, before we do get to the, to the penalty situation um, on the Danes, I mean, do you think they were a little bit hasty with their changes um, in the second half? I mean, Damsgaard and Dolberg both went off at the same time, um, just mm-hmm. after the hour mark. And I mean, Paulson came on, didn't really impact the game at all. Um, I thought he was very poor, especially in um, extra time um, as Denmark tried to kind of lift themselves somewhat to get forward. Um, and Christian Norgaard came on for uh, for Dolberg and didn't do a whole pile either, although he did kind of shore up the midfield in places. Um, like I could see why they made the changes. I mean, they wanted to add a little bit of defensive solidity and, you know, bring on fresh legs because they were starting to will. But it just felt a little bit early for me to be, to be taken off two of your best attacking players at that point. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I was quite surprised to see them come off in the double switch uh, when they did. It was like 67 minutes or something. It felt mm. quite early to be to be kind of putting in the low block and, and battening down the hatches. I completely agree, especially when, okay, Poulsen for Dahlberg probably is, is as close to uh, like for like in terms of quality that they had in their substitutes. But um, taking off Dahlberg and Damsgaard in one fell swoop, I mean, even staggered them six, seven, eight minutes apart. And like it really just felt like Denmark were seeding the, the game thing and we're saying this is all about hanging on here grimly as much as we can and um, like they were unlucky Christensen tried to play on for as long as he could and um, Delaney who I thought was absolutely excellent ran him, ran himself into the ground and had to come off but I, I, do, I do agree with you I think those two changes specifically together felt a little weird and it did feel like offering up the rest of the game and admitting basically we're not going to have anything to link here we'll try and hit Pilsen and we'll see if he can hold it up 
but like they, they didn't have anything to offer and I, I think they were basically admitting so when they were taking Damsgaard and Dahlberg, Dahlberg off so uh, no I'd have to agree it, it felt like an odd one at the time um, but I suppose Hulman will say his, his hands were tied and he was trying to, to hold on to what he had Yeah it's where I felt Denmark really missed kind of the X factor somebody like maybe Pione Sisto or somebody like that I mean yeah. they're bringing on Poulsen and you know Daniel Voss I mean they're fairly journeymen type of players if you like none of them yeah. are going to really scare England um, and I think that was the issue really the kind of the, the, the quality of subs they were bringing on so early in the game really for what they were trying to do which was change the flow of the game completely um, just wasn't really what they required um, and I, I think that that was what cost them in the end I mean obviously Poulsen's very experienced with Denmark and, and Leipzig but you know, he hasn't had a great tournament. Mm. I know he scored against Belgium, but his his confidence, you know, is very, very brittle. Um, Daniel Voss hasn't had a great couple of years, really, since leaving Celta Vigo. So, again, he he wasn't somebody who was going to come on and Shaw or, you know, Walker was going to think, geez, I have to I have to take a step back here because this guy's going to leave me for dead. Um, he's more of a, almost like a, a, a defensive wing back at this stage of his career. So, um, I think, you know, nothing about... Denmark substitutions, even though they were, I mean, you could say they were brave in terms of their timing in, in trying to change the game, which, you know, in, in theory, I'm all for, but I just don't think the quality was good enough for what they were bringing on. Um, and, you know, maybe even somebody like Cornelius could have, you know, been a bit more of a target man um, rather than Poulsen, who, you know, doesn't really play great up front on his own. He's always been somebody who's played in a, you know, a, a front two with Werner, for example, or a front three. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really going to change anything England were doing at the time, which was pretty much what Denmark were hoping for. And, and you know, um, the only surprise really was that England didn't finish it off in the 90 minutes. Yeah, and it, obviously it took the, the penalty for them to finally break the deadlock in extra time. I mean, the reaction to the penalty, I mean, obviously no surprise who thought it was a penalty and who didn't uh, think it was a penalty. I think you can uh, draw a nice, neat line down the Irish Sea to, 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 to divide what you want to do. <laughs> Although I was surprised to see um, on Twitter this morning that Kevin Doyle was uh, was on the favour of penalty. Um, he wasn't on the RTE panel, so I wonder if he had, he would have had the same opinion with a... Uh, with a, a very vehement uh, Didi Hemmer next to him. But, um, <laughs> I mean, to me, like, I don't think you can argue that it was a very, very, very soft penalty. To me, like, there are two points of contact, the first of which was Mela. I think at that stage, it kind of looked like Sterling was already beginning to go down before Mela touched him. And then he kind of, by going down, he kind of barged into Jensen um, slightly. And But at that point, he was already, already halfway down to the ground. I mean, this kind of storyline that's come out afterwards of, it, uh, of England suddenly um, finding, you know, streetwise football. Um, you kind of, it's like the the, the Nazi meme. Um, have they been the the shit houses all along? You know, are, are, have we been given <laughs> have we been given Italy too much credit? Like, are are England the the shit houses we should all be uh, be uh, crediting here over the course of the tournament? But um, be interesting to hear your thoughts on on the penalty. Like first and foremost, I have absolutely no issue with what Raheem Sterling did, right? It no. is 100% part of football, and I would be a total hypocrite if I sat here and saw uh, Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane do exactly the same sort of thing 
and turn around and say, oh, I had a problem with what Raheem Sterling did. The issue I have is that there is a man sitting in a little room <laughs> in Switzerland who has the power to say to the ref, just go over to the monitor and check that this decision you're making, yeah. which is going to decide the biggest game of the tournament so far for these players and the biggest game of some of their lives, just go and check that. Um, I, do, I don't understand why... Like I know, and I know there's this kind of tortured decision about what's clear and obvious, and I know refs are probably loath to undermine themselves in that they don't want to set a precedent of having to look at every penalty. But like this is a penalty in extra time of European Championship semi final that is soft at best, and uh, to not even go over and have a look at it. Yeah. Like he can come back and say, "I definitely think that's a penalty," and at least then I'm still going to disagree with it. I think, but at least I'll have some respect it, for the, the process. It just makes the whole situation a lot more palatable. I mean, soft or not, if yeah. he does take that second look, you're thinking, "Okay, fair enough." The referees looked at the slow motion. He's, he, you know, he's considered it a second time. But the fact that he didn't get sent over to the monitor at all in extra time of a semi final, I mean, that exactly. just that just blew my mind. Yeah, and like. <laughs> I, there's, I've seen this narrative um, a little bit today that like you said uh, you know England learned the dark arts and diving as part of the game I don't see people being annoyed at Sterling you know it's it's it's, it's not that it's, it's being no. vexed at the idea that, that the, the technology isn't being utilised properly I, there was like well I, I wasn't going to say his name I can because I doubt he listens but Jacob Steinberg the Guardian journalist wrote out a list of bad or wrong decisions that England were on the wrong side of and was like, I hope you were yeah. as outraged about all these. It's like, well, the problem is, Jacob, that there wasn't a little man in a room in 1998 to, to look over David Beckham's red card. Like, my problem is that the VAR wasn't implemented, not that Raheem Sterling went down too easily. I, I Like, I just, I cannot believe the discourse that, that has come out about it and the, the lines people are taking to um to defend it. Like, even, like, the, the XG crowd and a lot of people who I have a lot of time for were like, well, what do you expect when you've got a low XG and you put in a low block and you let your uh, opponents <laughs> run into your box a lot? Sometimes random events will occur. Like, that's, that's fucking ridiculous. That is a ridiculous argument to try and rationalize the fact that you got a penalty that I don't think was a penalty to get you through. Um, what I do think it should do, though, and it's it's a long time coming, but I think it should crystallize in the, the heads of English football fans that they are the baddies. They are not the good guys. They are not the people that people are going to get behind. They're not the Renford Rejects. They're the Razors. They're not the Mighty Ducks. They're the Hawks. They're not the Jamaican Bobsleigh team. They're the East Germans. They are the baddies. They're the people that people don't want to hate. Like Bad so Boy Pistons, Phil, here, yeah. Bad Boy Pistons, yeah. Exactly. Embrace it. Stop trying to make everyone like you. Stop trying to make everyone like your song about football coming home. Embrace the fact that you get this sort of decision. Embrace the fact that there's no goal that got you level if i was an england fan i'd be saying i hope that harry kane scores a handball goal in the last minute to win it embrace it roll with it like actually embrace the fume of people like me who got really annoyed <laughs> last night and embrace the fume of people like me who was accused of hating english people on twitter before the match last night like take that and like enjoy it and um, I, I like this need this want to like rationalize it and try and spin it mm. as something that it's not like, I have no problem with what Sterling did. Footballers have been doing it literally for, like, 50 years, maybe more. Like, I mean, you know, the, one of the most famous moments in football history is Diego Maradona and the hand of God. We love that. We can't turn around and say we hate what Sterling did. My problem is with the, with the refereeing apparatus and not, and not utilising VAR. I won't even mention the second ball on the pitch, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> 
<sighs> and I got shit for Rabio last week. Can you believe that? Like, geez. <laughs> but uh, I, I find it tough to <laughs> disagree with most of that. Um, but it is interesting, like the hot takes from, you know, as Phil said, people wanting to reel off this list of grievances that they have. I somebody I saw somebody even say that Beckham was conned in 1998, you know, like it was like he kicked the guy in the back of the shins. Um, VAR would easily give that as a red card these days. Um, so, yeah, like, you know, I, I try to be f- as philosophical as possible as long as these decisions don't affect United, obviously, um, and say... You know, some things go for you, some things go against yeah. you. Uh, I would have liked to have seen the referee have a look at it on the big screen, but honestly, I don't think he would have changed his mind. And I think that's the biggest issue with VAR, which is you have this scenario where you have people trying to judge whether they should tell, you know, a fellow professional, well, you need to look at that or you need to change your mind or something like that. And I think that's the biggest issue with technology in football is trying to be compared to American football or tennis or cricket where they've established parameters that are very matter of fact that can't be really disagreed with or don't embarrass anybody, you know? Like if a line judge in tennis misses a line call and Hawkeye shows it it was out when it wasn't or whatever, it just it's dealt with there and then. Whereas with football, it's still subjective. And that's the biggest issue. So you have a guy sitting there looking at the screen thinking, well, do I tell another guy to sit there or to run over, look at the screen when I think he was probably right. Anyways, I'll let his decision stand because it'll be too much hassle either way or we'll get, you know, criticized for taking three or four minutes to make a decision. All these things have been kind of stacking up uh, for VAR in the last two to three years. I mean, the 2018 World Cup was kind of fortunate in the terms of there was nothing really controversial about any of the VAR decisions, it was all seemed to be streamlined very efficiently. And, and I, I don't even remember any of us talking about it at the time, whereas mm. since then, every single issue has been analyzed um, with a microscope. Um, you know, looking at it, I, I feel that if he had to look at the screen, it probably would have shown one player contact him and then another player contact him and he would have gone down. And I don't think the decision would have been overturned. And it's very similar to a lot of the penalties United have gotten in the past two to three years. So I can't turn around and say, well, this is a disgrace or, you know, it is gamesmanship. That's what it is, but that's the game. You know, it's very, you know, I think back to Damien Duff in 2002 against Spain. I mean, he was waiting for that touch to come. (laughs) And as soon as it did, he was, he just went down and, you know, the ref had to give it. So that's been going on, as Phil said, for a very, very long time. And and when it goes in your favor, you absolutely defend it. And when it goes against you, you're mm. outraged. And, and that's kind of the beauty of the game, really. So, um, But it's just a shame that we have brought in this technology now and it still doesn't really seem to have a solution in terms of how to, you know, make a decision on these situations where somebody is playing for a penalty. I mean, uh, you know, what... What are the parameters that are in place for somebody like that in terms of they're waiting for the contact? They're probably already going to go down. They have no interest in, you know, completing the cross or making a pass. They're just waiting for that contact to go down in order for the ref to give a penalty. And, you know, this is a situation that will continue to go on and on as long as VAR is in place, really, because at least when it wasn't, you just had to accept the decision. But now that it's there, we're... 
we have situations where we do analyze and say, why didn't he look at this? And VAR should have overturned that. Um, so it's it's a very difficult situation that football has found itself in now, similar to the one millimeter offsides and, you know, somebody smashing a ball at somebody's hands from two yards out. You know, it's VAR was rolled out without any sort of decent um, guidelines in terms of how it's going to improve the game really and make it a better spectacle in terms of it's just caused more debate really and more confusion and and none of us are none the wiser really in terms of why the referee wasn't just called over to have a look at that just to at least make us happy that you know he could stand by his decision after reviewing it um so yeah it's 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 something that's not going to go away but you know, trying to be as philosophical as possible today, I could look back and think, yeah, I could see potentially why it was given. And, you know, I don't think he would have changed his mind if he looked at the screen just from everything that we've seen from VAR. Yeah. Um, the penalty itself then, I mean, Kane so bad that Michael somehow managed to dive past it. Um, and he, he got so far that the only thing he could do was, was kind of parry it back into Kane's path, unfortunately. But, Otherwise, I mean, Schmeichel, absolutely superb on the night. Um, a lot of people were expecting him to have a fantastic game, um, given the, the occasion. And he is a big game player. Um, and I mean, England have prized a couple of decent young Irish players from, from our shores. I mean, I'm sure they could have, uh, they, if they could turn back time to get Schmeichel on their books, they'd, uh, they'd would have had it one a long time ago. Um, uh, he was that good. On... Some of the decent English performances, I mean, dive aside, Sterling, another fantastic game, probably the best English player on the field. Do you think he's player of the tournament wrapped up more or less if uh, if England win on, on Sunday? Yeah, I thought he was great again. Um, like he, he is in in that kind of first choice 11, he is kind of the, the real difference maker at the minute um, in the kind of starting team. He he. Like he he's just he's he's done this weird thing where he hasn't been in great form for City nearly for two years now, but he's throughout the time continued to be England's best player almost, uh, which is kind of strange strange way for him to do it. But um, he's been great all tournament. He was great. He was great last night, and definitely I agree. If uh, if they manage to win on Sunday, I can't see anyone else winning player of the tournament. Really, he's uh, he's come up big when they needed him. He's been involved in all the big moments for England uh, this tournament. There's like. There's there's going to be in the montages in years to come, whether they win or lose on Sunday. These montages that are going to get played presumably for sixty five years, like uh, we we're seeing from the World Cup sixty six. Sterling is going to be at the center of all the all the big moments. Uh, he, he's been great, and it, it is good to see um, somebody who is so incredibly talented, but who has been vilified probably more than any English player of his generation. It's great to see him have this moment. It is sickening to see the people who turned around and like you know scorned him for going on holidays or buying his mama house or or having a big sink uh now praising him but it is also great for him to have this kind of moment where in the first game of the tournament ITV asked him how he justified his selection and now he's he, you know he, he he might win player of the tournament um so like i i'm delighted for him uh, on on a personal level for him to have had this impact um as you said penalty aside but um yeah like i i i can't see if England do triumph on Sunday, I can't see anyone else uh, beating them to, to play at the tournament. He's been great. Yeah, I'd agree 100%. I mean, you know, I know they're doing around the lot these days, but, um, you know, some of the headlines were absolutely outrageous. I mean, footy idiot and all these sort of things. I mean, 
the misunderstanding about the gun tattoo, etc. You know, and once Pierce Morgan gets involved, it's pretty cringeworthy. But uh, for him to get through all of that, and I remember watching an interview with him. I think it was before the 2018 World Cup, where at one point he said, "I don't know if I should even leave the house anymore because there's nothing I can do. You know, there's nothing these people want from me except these negative headlines." So for him to be you know, the standout for England in the tournament, you know, when there are fans booing them, taking the knee because of that misunderstanding. And I know we discussed that before the tournament, but, um, you know, ultimately they have a phenomenal Jamaican born footballer who's, you know, producing for England. I mean, you know, it's a great story as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's come through, um, the youth ranks at English football clubs played well for Liverpool, got the big move to city, and has succeeded pretty much for the last seven or eight years in his career, almost flawlessly, really. He's had dips in his form for sure, but, um, you know, to see him play as well as he is now and, and with the fluidity of his game, it's something so rare for an English footballer to have, you know, going back to, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, it was very rigid in terms of how English footballers played, even with the quality they had in midfield, in terms of the wingers and the forwards, they were all very traditional but Sterling is such a modern player where he can just move across that front three seamlessly um, and he really ties everything together for England um, and his link up with Kane and Sean Mount he just seems to be on on the same page as everybody else and absolutely the player of the tournament for me and and you know I hope it all goes well for him on Sunday as well because you know he's a phenomenal talent and I, I think he deserves all the success he's had Absolutely. Um, before we sign off in this game, just a, a quick word on Denmark uh, overall. I mean, just an incredible story. Um, I mean, the Finland game feels so long ago now uh, um, when Christian Eriksen went down and, you know, the emotion in the aftermath was so powerful. Um, and thanks be to God, he, he seems to be doing well and is back on his feet already, which is uh, absolutely fantastic to see. I mean, it is a pity they didn't get to the final, but I think, I mean, they had a, a run that was absolutely fantastic. Um, you can't take anything away from them overall. I mean, we had Kenneth um, from Denmark on a couple of weeks ago who just kind of oozed that Danish positivity um, and, and, and class. And I mean, um, just a fantastic story really overall. Um, I mean, they showed that, you know, beyond Ericsson, they're a hell of a team, um, which was probably something that was overlooked slightly going into the tournament. Um, you know, one that is probably knocking on the door of that kind of top tier um, of, of 10 or 12 sides in the world. But, I mean, to do what they did after seeing their teammate and colleague and friend go down like that in that first game um, against Finland to go on to a, a European semi-final is just remarkable. Uh, completely. Uh, like I, I know Kenneth was at pains to point out to us that um, Denmark's run to the quarter-final wasn't necessarily something that was just powered by, by kind of a do it for Christian Eriksen sort of sort of mood around the camp. In that before the tournament, they probably fancied themselves to make it this far. Like you said, they're like the tenth in the world rankings. Like the spine of their team is Leicester, Chelsea, Dortmund, Spurs, Nice. You know, there's Atalanta in there. There's there's Sampdoria. So there's loads of really high quality cl- high quality clubs in that squad. But you can't overlook the psychological impact that they would have had in in that first game. Um, like uh, having to watch their friend pass away in front of them to, to, to be resuscitated. Um, and, and like in a footballing sense, to have lost that first game, like if you strip away the psychological impact of having to actually just go back to the same stadium and do it again um, and, 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 and run things back, 
they were actually in a bad position in football terms. They lost to the weakest team in their group. They were really behind the eight ball. Um, and to turn it around from where they did and to get to a stage that they probably hoped they could get to uh, with, a, with a fair wind with Christian Eriksen, to do it without him, with everything that happened to them, it absolutely has to be applauded. And I know it didn't have quite the fairy tale ending that 1992 had, but I think like if it, when they look back on this with a little bit of distance, they will really appreciate what they've done. And if you listen to Kenneth on the podcast and the way it brought the country together around a team, uh, I think that could be a lasting legacy for it, which, which is really great. Yeah, again, it came across my timeline today. Just that image of them clenched together, protecting Ericsson and that view, um, which, you know, we've we've seen previous pictures of of players who have you know uh collapsed on the pitch in the past we've never seen a whole team just unite around them to protect the view so nobody could see what was actually happening at the time um it was just a staggering moment really and certainly you know something that will stick in my mind for a very very long time and then to have to go back and play the rest of the game an hour later was just Mm. absolutely bizarre um, and then to lose the next game against Belgium, I mean, I just thought they would pack up and go home at that stage. But, you know, you mentioned with, with Kenneth at the time, the atmosphere in Copenhagen stadiums, when they were playing those home games, there still was a lot of hope that Denmark could produce something, not just for Ergson, but just for themselves in the past, you know, two to three years of success that they have had as a football team, as we, as we well know, uh, having suffered at their hands plenty of times. Um, so it was really great to see them turn it around. And as Phil said, there's a huge amount of talent in that squad. And it would have been a big shame if, if it had been wasted this tournament. Um, and I think there is a lot more to come from them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was great to see them even yesterday perform so well for so long against England, even though, you know, for the second half, they were out in their fa- feet completely. And, and the lack of squad depth did show in the end. Um, but yeah, certainly the, the story of the tournament by far. Um, and I was delighted to see them kind of overcome the trauma really of that incident uh, and that it didn't define their tournament in a negative way. It's it's defined it in a positive way. And, you know, we hear that uh, Ericsson has been invited to Wembley on Sunday for the final, which will be a great moment for him as well, obviously being a former Spurs player. So it's all kind of, you know, a, a relatively happy ending as much as it could be um for him so um yeah looking forward to seeing what what Denmark can produce in the future but also you know to link it back to Ireland a little bit you know a a country who has a a similar type of population um and who would have been a a similar footballing stature of the last kind of decade or so in terms of you know where they're positioned in in the rankings and stuff it does give a lot of potential positivity for us in terms of what we can achieve um if we can tie it all together obviously we don't have their their level of involvement in in terms of top European teams at the moment, but um, they're they've always been a very inspiring nation and, and have always punched above their weight. And I think they give a lot of hope to uh, other countries as well who can achieve similar. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll always be one to root for Denmark. Mm. On to the final day, lads, on Sunday um, in Wembley. Of course, it's going to be Italy's tenth major tournament final. Um, they've had six World Cups and four European Championships. Um, whereas England's first ever appearance in the European Championship final, and obviously only their second major tournament final after 1966. Um, what are you going to be expecting out of this game? I mean, I expect it'll be relatively cagey. Um, I imagine Southgate will keep to 
um, what he's what he's established at this point with uh, with Rice and Phillips and and be nice and compact and pragmatic. Italy, I mean, more of the same from them, I suppose. With that four three three, um, you'd imagine it start more or less the same as what they did in Spain. Um, it feels a little bit more even than maybe you would have expected coming in earlier in the week with uh, with a potential Italy and England final. I probably would have had Italy slight favours, but it does feel like this could be another long drawn out game, maybe even the extra time and penalties. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of what you said there is banging on, Kev. I think there's nothing sure than Southgate is going to stick with the tried and trusted and what's gotten him this far. He's made no secret about the fact that he's um, he's modelled this team on, on France 2018 and, and Portugal 2016. So, um, I think what he's going to do is what he's done all tournament, which is keep it really tight and rely on people like Sterling and Kane to make the difference up the top. Um, I think Italy will be really interested in how effective Denmark's press was in putting pressure on uh, England's midfield to the centre-backs in Pickford. I think that's going to be a feature from them. Uh, they're not backwards about being forwards, about that sort of thing in general. So I'd say Italy will try and get at them with a bit of tempo that way. Um but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it could, it could be really tight. It wouldn't surprise me to see it going all the way. Um, it's it's like I'm struggling to call it as well myself, to be honest. I mean, England are at that stage re- exactly like France and Portugal, where they've got a good enough generation of players mm. now where to keep it simple and to keep it compact will mean they're always going to be winning a chance because they've got enough of an X factor either on the pitch or with Grealish, Sancho, and whoever else followed and coming off the bench. Um, Italy, to me, feel more almost like Germany 2014. It feels like a slightly different approach in that it's uh, like it, like Germany. Italy took a quite a long view at what was going on with their football, what was going wrong with their football, and have arrived at a particular style and a particular and trying to exploit some kind of innovations and tactics as opposed to trying to keep it simple and letting the talent do their work. So it's an interesting contrast, I think, between... On one hand, England, who are following the model, which has worked really well recently, which is have a good set of players and, and keep it tight. And then Italy, who I think maybe are going for that kind of more holistic approach that, that the Germans rode to, to World Cup success. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised by either outcome. I probably still have a slight fa- favoritism for Italy in terms of like how I think it'll go. Obviously, I, I'd rather them win than England, but uh, I actually like genuinely think there's probably a, a slight favoritism there just because I think they've shown enough ways of hurting teams and then I just think Pickford's nearly always going to give a team a chance um, but I, I, like I think Southgate is going to do exactly what he's done to get the team here to this point uh, which has worked for him and he, like he'll be able to point and I said in the last podcast I was on that it, it ends justifying the means uh, he won't care if people think it was dull and boring uh, he'll point to the fact that he's given England three nights already now in this tournament that they'll talk about for years and he could deliver only their second ever international trophy, so he's well within his rights to do what to do what what's gotten them this far and to to what to do what brought him to the dance, as they say. And um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. It'll be tight. It'll be cagey. Going to my head, I'm probably saying Italy, maybe in 120 minutes rather than than, than penalties. Um, but I, I think we're probably in for a bit of a nail biter on Sunday night. Yeah, I think it's all on Italy really in terms of how they approach the game. We know exactly what England are going to do. Um, I've I've a feeling Italy are going to try and and pull a surprise here. I I've no idea why, but just because of the the lack of form Immobile has had, and then his direct replacement Bellotti is an awful matchup for 
England and Maguire in particular, considering Bellotti's strength in the air, I, I think mm. England would deal with him quite comfortably. So I, I'm just wondering, will they try and pack the midfield with even the four midfielders and then have Insigne and Chiesa as the split strikers? Because if you look at Verratti, Jorginho and Barella, only Barella is really probably going to press England um, in that midfield three. And if, you know, we saw England's pivot for the first time in the tournament be put under pressure by Denmark. So uh, I'm a bit curious to see how Mancini plays it. Uh, You know, he'll probably stick with the 4-3-3 just because it's got him this far. But um, I wouldn't be overly surprised if he tries to pull something a, a bit different to just to give England something different to think about on, on the night. I mean, the back four is pretty much straightforward considering, um, you know, Spinazzola's injury um, of Benucci, Chiellini, Emerson and Di Lorenzo at this point. But, you know, that front six, we could see some slight variation there to get Verratti, Jorginho, Barella and Pessina in the midfield four just to keep that high press on the pivot and England's back four, which are, still aren't overly comfortable playing out from the back, even though, you know, they've done that a lot in the past three or four years, but they've not been put under enough pressure in this tournament to really suffer. Uh, and even Pickford playing out from the back had a couple of mistakes uh, against Denmark. So um, it will be interesting to see how, how Italy plays this, but they've got probably a bit more experience on their side than the England team. Um they have the better keeper and they probably on paper have the stronger midfield. So it, it's, it's fractionally in their favor, but again, it, it, you know, play playing in, in Wembley against England is, is, is a very, very big challenge. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the final matchup that I wanted from the, from the final four. So, um, I'm really looking forward to see how it goes, but I don't think it'll be an incredible game by any means, but, um, I think tactically it'll be very interesting to see yeah. how it plays out. No, I was slightly kind of off, but off point. But um, like I'm not saying I'm going to enjoy it if England win. But I have been relatively surprised by how much I've enjoyed the joy some of the sound people on Twitter have been getting out of exactly, it. If that makes yeah. sense. Well, like we, we all follow a lot of Brits online, like so. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, and a large portion moment, of them you know? are completely sound. Exactly. And, yeah, and like I've actually really enjoyed seeing how into it people are even people that wouldn't necessarily be mad england fans the rest of the time mad football fans but maybe are more uh attuned to liverpool or united or whoever mm. and the way some of those big club fans sometimes are and um, but it, it's just been great to see the kind of positivity for sound people you know because like it's it's really easy to to fall back on like being begrudging about it and trust me i will be between <laughs> now and sunday for sure but um it is also nice to see the kind of and be reminded even of the lower scale stuff that we get, like, you know, Robbie Brady's goal, 2002 World Cup, before my time, but Italian 90, most obviously. Those kind of, like, nation-unifying moments that don't come along that often. It's nice for for the people that you see experiencing it. And there is kind of a little bit of a reflection of, of kind of joy that way. Um, but there's an awful lot of envy mixed into it as well, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we were in the same shoes, um, I think we'd be just as loud and as just as boisterous um, and in your face with, uh, with whatever chants and songs we were coming up with. Um, in fairness, uh, so like, like you, <laughs> um, just back to the game quickly. I mean, you both made some good points there, honestly. I think one thing I feel about Italy coming into this is that they've had every type of win so far. I mean, they had the the extra time slog against Austria. They had. Um, that 90-minute win against a, a, a strong Belgian side and obviously um, beating Spain on penalties. I mean, it, it feels like they're coming in 
more hardy than England are, even though Denmark gave England a, a little bit of a fright early on, um, which I think could stand to Italy overall. Um, and, and for me, especially, like, I mean, looking over the course of England's tournament, uh, you know, Germany were probably the most difficult game. Um, in attacking areas, Thomas Muller and, and, and Werner were, were very poor. So they're probably coming up against their strongest attack so far in terms of Chiesa and Insigne. Um, and whether or not Immobile starts, like you said. But, I mean, if they can get at Walker and Shaw, who haven't really been tested so far defensively, it will be interesting to see how um, how the cards fall. And, and like Enda said, that midfield three um, is definitely the um, the best, or it's certainly the most informed midfield they've come up against so far in the tournament. So um, it is going to be a, a very interesting battle uh, tactically and and uh, psychologically as well, if uh, if Cialini has anything to say about it, yeah, look, completely. I I, I think um, you're bang on when you say that Italy probably have come through more examining tests than England have. Like, I mean, full credit to England uh, on our preview podcast. I said I thought they were going to bow in the last sixteen when they faced the first half decent team they came up against. I did expect it to be Portugal or France rather than Germany, but they got over that test and they've done the job in in the resulting games. Uh, but I do think you're right. There's there's probably enough about Italy and the different facets we've seen to them. So we've seen them, especially in the group stage, really roll this kind of really irresistible attacking force. Then against Austria, against Spain, we've seen them dig in in that kind of classically Italian style with Hell's Kitchen there in, in the centre-half partnership, like just dragging people down and, and getting down and dirty, mucking bullets flying. Um, so I do think that, that it, there is going to be an awful lot of kind of us pausing, trying to figure out when England are in possession, what Italy are doing, and what when Italy are in possession, what England are doing. I think it's going to be quite interesting that way. There's probably going to be different passing lanes cut and different sort of zone, zonal, um, zonal setups put together. But um, like it, it's it, it is going to be a real examination. I think of Southgate, who at, at like to basically everyone's agreement, isn't some sort of master tactician, isn't exactly the 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 biggest football brain like when you talk about Southgate and, and what he's been given credit for it's his it, it's it's his man management skills and it's kind of his people management and how he's kind of harnessed the power around the squad whereas Mancini does a bit of that but he's very much credited with 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 his with his tactical brain so it's going to be a real examination for Southgate I think as well and um, in that he's going to be put through the ringer and it will be a real test for him to see does he have the chops beyond Double like double defensive pivot, keep it simple. Can he kind of plot a way forward? It's a bit more complicated. Yeah, and especially if it comes down to the benches, I feel. I mean, the English bench for an occasion like this is extremely inexperienced. Whereas you look at who Italy could potentially bring on to to see a game out or to get through extra time. I mean, Cristante, Florenzi, um, you know. Bellotti, you know, they've been around for a very, very long time, where, whereas, you know, in, in international terms, at least, Sancho, Grealish, Foden, as exceptional as they are, they've not really been in this position before, um, and they haven't really been showing much faith throughout the tournament. I mean, Grealish coming on and then coming off, for example, I mean, he said he was fine with it, but it's still a bit slightly <laughs> embarrassing uh, for a footballer to be subbed on and subbed off, but again, it was a tactical situation at the time, but... Um, you just feel that Italian nous, especially with those centre backs, as Phil said. I mean, they're, you know, 
Chiellini and Benucci as a partnership have shown the best form um, that they've shown for maybe three or four years together um, uh, in terms of what they're producing at the moment. Um, and that experience is is very tough for England to deal with. And the type of the type of play that Kane enjoys in particular could suit Italy. Um, if he drops deep, you'd imagine Giorgino and Verratti will be on him. If he stays in the box, Chiellini and Benucci will be quite comfortable dealing with him. So um, it, it does suit Italy a little bit, This the matchups, uh, like for like. Um, so I, I definitely think it's, it's Southgate's biggest tactical decision he has, probably since the Germany game where he just decided to go for that 3-5-2 just to shut Germany off and to crowd the midfield so that Cruz couldn't supply Muller on the forward line. And that was really the game for England. And they just had to bide their time. And that's exactly what they did. Whereas Italy are a bit more of a threat going forward than Germany were. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays it as well. And obviously dealing with the pressure of their first final in, in you know, four or five decades or whatever it is. So um, there's a lot of layers to this that... Um, we we all can't uncover at the moment, but um, it'll be interesting to see how, how they manage it. But I just think there's a bit too much experience on the Italian side in terms of the manager and, and the team and the squad overall compared to England, who who have all the pressure really on them at the moment. Are you both calling it for Italy, Solids? I am indeed. Yeah, Forza just Italia. about, yeah. Yeah, just about, yeah. yeah. Does that mean I have to say England or, or, or are we <laughs> nah, above that? No, we, we don't, don't do that. balance here. We're not the BBC. <laughs> Um, like Liam Brady on RT going for uh, for England after Richie and uh, Aditi were, were well and truly aboard the, the yeah. Denmark bandwagon. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, thanks everyone for, for tuning in over the course of the Euros. Um, we've really enjoyed doing these podcasts. I think it's been a, a real uh, nice return to some some entertaining football after a, a real slog of a season. So um, thanks to Phil and Enda for their uh, continued um, unrivaled coverage of uh, of the Euros over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, lads. That's great. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>